Again today, I'm continuing to talk about a series that I've entitled, Observing All Things. This is taken from Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, where Jesus said, Teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And I tell you, the church has, as a whole, not been teaching people to observe all things that the Lord says. We have been picking and choosing and primarily just talking about eternal values, going to heaven or hell, but we haven't been teaching what the Scripture has to say about current issues, economy, uh, abortion, uh, and what we've been focusing on the last week was creation versus evolution. And I know that there's a lot of people that think, man, you do not need to counter evolution. Evolution counters the Bible. For instance, the Scripture says that, that God commanded each animal to bring forth after its kind. That means that no species evolves from one species into another, which is de evolution is dependent upon that. I also brought out that the Scripture says the wages of sin is death. And yet evolution believes that death happened eons, millions of years before Adam and Eve came along. And yet the Bible teaches that death is a result of Adam and Eve's sin. So that right there undercuts the authority of the Word of God. And I know as I bring some of these things out, some of you are thinking, well, man, you can't sit here and counter science. I mean, science has proven that evolution is an established fact. It hasn't. I don't believe that that's true. Uh, as a matter of fact, I know that many of you will sit there and immediately discount what I have to say because I've spent all of my time learning the Bible. And you may, some of you probably just totally upset with me and everything about me, but others may say, well, I love you and you teach the Bible, but why don't you just stick with the Bible and not get into all of this stuff? You aren't a scientist. You don't know this. Well, let me bring a scientist on. Let me introduce you to Dr. Carl Baugh. I've already played some of his stuff, but we are discussing this very thing about is evolution a proven fact? And it's not. And I believe that if you hear it from somebody who's got some degrees and some secular credentials, and he's going to be using terminology that to me is Greek, but nonetheless he's saying the same thing, that creationism, as the Bible teaches it, is correct, and evolution is a theory, and it's a flawed theory. Even the evolutionists don't agree. There are so many different interpretations of the way it happened, and they're constantly changing all of these things. So anyway, listen as I do this interview with Dr. Carl Ball from Creation Evidence Museum in Glen Rose, Texas, and he'll be sharing some things from a scientific standpoint showing you the flaws of evolution. If you've got all of this stuff, how is it that these scientists uh, gain so much inroad with this? And I, I go back in my mind to maybe the Scopes trial, is that what it was, where oh, evolution yes. was? How did we get to this point to where they are promoting as fact stuff that is theory and really has no basis in reality? Uh, there came an age of enlightenment. Now, I'm for enlightenment. You're an intelligent person. You're enlightened. You're able to uh, analyze things and ask profound questions and give profound answers. And, and we all continue to uh, seek for answers in life. And, and the more active our minds are, the more active our bodies are, the younger we are. Uh, I hope to be active until Jesus comes, until he raptures us away. Okay, uh, there was the age of enlightenment, but the age of enlightenment introduced naturalism to try to explain everything in life, and life itself, and science in particular, 
with a naturalistic process. Now, science operates naturally because God set the laws, but to explain science without God establishing those laws has mm -hmm. never been possible. That's right. Leading evolutionists have not been able to explain second law of thermodynamics, yep. that everything goes from ordered to disordered. It, it is. If you put an arrangement of flowers here and come back in a hundred years, it's not going to be better. It'll fall apart. You, you come back in a week and it's beginning to fall <laughs> That's apart. That's right. Everything goes from order to disorder. You cannot observe what evolutionists claim anywhere. Anywhere in the universe. In the universe. Uh, the stars are exploding and all of that's explained. Now the they will sometimes say like a moth, you know, changes from this to that, but it's just a color phase of the exact same moth. Yes. There, there, there isn't this change that, that, that all of evolution is dependent upon observable, and yet they will claim that it is. You're talking about Biston Bisteria. That's, and the, that's what I meant to say. Uh, the, yes, <laughs> about the, the moth and the Industrial Revolution uh, in England in particular. Uh, what they really don't say is those moths don't rest on those trees. Uh, they had to glue them on a tree to get a picture of it. Secondly, you get moths that are going to be exposed for the birds and you'll get more of them eaten. So very quietly you get a, a different natural preservation. You see, Charles Darwin used natural selection to say it produced new species and varieties. No, no it doesn't. No. It preserves what we already have. Right. So the age of enlightenment introduced naturalism. So when Charles Darwin came along, his theory was ready for adoption. There was people wanting to believe that. Wanting to believe it. There was an anti-religious segment in Europe. That's where Voltaire swore that the total elimination of Christianity. And, uh, and that was the age of enlightenment. And as, as soon as Voltaire died, yeah. the British Bible Society bought his home in the press. He used to print his atheistic books, I think printed it was, Bibles. I think it was exactly 100 years after his birth, and he swore that he would eliminate the Bible, that it would not even be... Uh, acknowledged. On that anniversary, they printed Bibles in his house. On the From his press. Yes. I love it. Well, this age of enlightenment meant that Charles Darwin had come at the right time. Now, there was a counterpart to Charles Darwin who came up with the same idea, but he wanted God included in this natural selection. Charles Darwin did not. Charles Darwin mentioned God in passing to begin with but then later uh, never mentioned the name of God and, and denied God being involved. Well, now, in the last phrase of his book, I've heard that he, sa he ends by saying, surely there must be a God. Is that accurate or yeah. inaccurate? Early, in early editions. Oh, he uh, yes. edited that out? Oh, yes, edited that out. And in later books that he wrote, he edited God out altogether. But back to what you mentioned on the Scopes trial. Yeah, how did this become so prominent? Well, in Europe, it became prominent. Naturalism became prominent. Then in America, as we became more sophisticated, we became more like the Europeans. So there was the introduction of naturalistic thoughts, but America had been founded on principles that were unique. Mm -hmm. In every one of the preamble or the constitution or the charter, one of the three, of the original 13 colonies, there's a reference to the Bible, to the Savior, or to God as creator in every one of them. America was raised up by God for a unique purpose. And unfortunately, we have strayed from that purpose and to that degree, we have brought judgment upon ourselves. But uh, this naturalism found introduction, but in Tennessee, there was a law in the public school system that you could not teach evolutionary theory. Scopes 
who was an assistant coach, was enticed. He didn't teach it in his biology class, but he was enticed to do so, and he, and he only taught a bit of it. But enough for the evolutionists to bring attention. And uh, so he was actually, his fine was paid by a creationist, his fine for disobeying the school laws. It was, you know, those were good, decent people. But ultimately, it made its way to the Scopes Evolution Trial. It, in the trial, you had Williams Jennings Bryan, a sincere creationist Christian, not totally informed on the issues, yeah. but William Jennings Bryan was a very committed Christian and creationist. Clarence Darrow was the opposition attorney representing evolution. In the trial, Clarence Darrow said, I want you to answer the, uh, the Nebraska man. Now his technical name was Hesperopithecus Harold Kukii. That technical name was given by Henry Fairfield Osborne, the anthropologist and geologist uh, from the East Coast and from Harvard schools, etc. Henry Fairfield Osborne had said, this is the best evidence for evolution we have in the Western Hemisphere. Now that's quite a statement because in 1923, see the Scopes Evolution Trial that you're asking about took place in 1925 in Dayton, Tennessee. In 1923, we have had a geologist Harold Cook, who was excavating in northwestern Nebraska, and he found a tooth. Andrew, that tooth, for all the world, looks half ape and half human. I mean, that tooth was a dead ringer. He just found a tooth. In 1925, Henry Fairfield Osborne, at the Scopes Evolution Trial, had that tooth in a little box. It was sent by Harold Cook. Henry Fairfield Osborne, the scholar, named it in honor of him Hesperopithecus Pithecus has to do with uh, an ape who walks erect. Hesperopithecus. And they built all of this off of a tooth? Well, from that tooth, the London Illustrated Times Sunday edition, not only from a single tooth, they presented an edition that presented the man, and he was all humped over. How do you over. draw a picture of a person from a tooth? Uh, well, they did. <laughs> you have to have a pretty good imagination, I would think. Well, and you have to skew the data yeah. from a tooth. But for the world, that tooth looked half ape half man. But not only did the London Illustrated Times have this stooped over man with an axe, they had his wife there making some food. They had a child standing by. They had a fence the fellow had built. They had some animals he had domesticated, all from a tooth. And that's supposed to be enlightenment. <laughs> so Clarence Darrow, in a little box, had that tooth. He never showed the tooth at the trial. He never showed the tooth to the creation attorney. And uh, he said, explain to me about this tooth. How does that fit? Uh, that shows evolution. And uh, of, course, of course, the creationist said, well, I haven't studied the tooth. Well, well, give the answer. But I haven't studied the tooth. I need to see it. I need to research it. No, give me an answer. The trial is now. Well. Did he ever show him the tooth? No, he didn't show him the tooth. He didn't show the tooth to the jury. He didn't show the tooth to the so press. So what about this tooth is so convincing? Okay. That was 1925. 1923, the discovery had been made by Harold Cook. In 1926, after the trial was over and after evolution was then introduced into the Dayton public school system, ultimately the seeds were sown. 1926, Harold Cook went back to the same gravel pit, excavated and found the rest of the fossil. But what was it? Was it an ape developing to a man, or was it a man that had developed from an ape? None of the above. The rest of the teeth 
looked just like the first one. The fossil was a pig. A pig. I've heard that. Now, we were able to make arrangements. I told you, everything in the museum requires a miracle. Every step along the way. We have certified from this scholar through the Smithsonian where he worked. We have one of the teeth, not the original tooth. That was at the trial. But uh, the uh, that was at the trial. Later excavated but from the that tooth pig. from the original jaw. This tooth, it's been years since I've touched it, and you're going to get to hold it. Well, this is a great honor. I didn't know I'd be doing all of well, this. Well, it's... Holding a little piece of history. This is from the jaw of Hesperopithecus Harold Cookiei, the Nebraska man that introduced evolution into the public school system, but it's just wow. a pig's tooth. Isn't that amazing? And from this, this is how the Scopes trial was basically swung towards evolution. And from this, at that trial, Clarence Darrow said, it's a travesty of justice that only one theory of life origin should be taught. Well, once they got evolution in the public school system, they redefined science and redefined all the other issues. So now creation cannot be taught. That's a travesty. Of that is a travesty of justice. <laughs> and that little pig. That's amazing. Got his pig pen into the classroom. That's amazing. You know, in a sense, here you go. I'll let you take it back. I don't want to drop it or break it. In a sense, God was on trial at the Scopes trial and whether or not he's real versus yes. whether all of this evolved. And yes. That's bound to have made a profound effect upon the whole psyche of the American public. It, it did. Well, this just underscores how important this whole thing on creationism versus really evolution is. is because once that plank was gone, there's so many things that depend upon us being responsible to a creator. That's right. And if you take that away, well, then that allows for homosexuality, God oh, oh. made them Adam and, and Steve instead of Adam and Eve. Oh, sure. You, you can justify nearly anything if there is no creator. And disruption of the classroom and the morals and the lives and morality uh, and the thinking, the thought process of these children. Yep. If, you, if you don't have guidelines for them as you've already lined out, then the, the You're children... You're the center of the universe and so everything revolves around everything. you. And yes. you don't have to think about other people. You can abuse their rights. Yes. Yes. I tell you, the word is accurate, and we do not have to uh, be intimidated by oh, no. anybody who claims that the Bible is outdated and it doesn't un understand evolution and all of these facts, because they aren't facts. I tell you what, there's a lot in the Word of God. I study it day and night, and there's some things you're bringing up I've never seen, never thought of. You brought us some Amazing. things I haven't thought of. <laughs> <laughs> we need each other. Yes. Well, that's awesome. I tell you, I sure appreciate this. this. I just think it has been tremendous. And hopefully the results of it will be that people will quit just drinking the Kool-Aid and taking these statements that it's a proven fact that evolution is true and they'll recognize that the Word of God is true and it's been tested and tried and it's uh, outlasted Voltaire, the Enlightenment, oh, yes. naturalist, and also all of the humanists. And it's going to be around and forever. We'll find out. Yes. It's awesome. I appreciate it, brother. This has Thank been you so much. So enjoyable. Thank been you. Awesome. Thank you for caring enough to oh, see and what also, we have. Before we let you go, you need to say a little bit about this museum. I imagine that there's a lot of our viewers who are interested in uh, where are you? When are you open? Very glad to do so. We have a website. You can log on to www 
creationevidence.org, just creationevidence.org. We're open to the public Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Uh, there are reasons for that. Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, I, I now have refined my schedule where I, uh, by appointment, lead tours through the museum. So you can set an appointment if there are at least 25 people, and uh, I explain what we've talked about firsthand. I've found that that's the best way to communicate. That's Monday through Wednesday, but you have to set that up by appointment. And uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, it's open to the general public and the, their automated tours to go through the museum. Once you walk in, uh, you see the wall of truth. You see this geologic column with replication of these artifacts, man-made artifacts scattered throughout the column. And the explanation given that this geologic column is not the result of evolutionary development, but the result of Noah's flood. Mm -hmm. Then you come to the center of the museum and you see the actual artifacts that are replicated. And of course, we have full security. Then, here's a very important point. Here at the museum, these scientific artifacts are on one tier. Above them, we have scrolls from the Old Testament, Bibles of the New Testament. The Bible is absolute authority. Amen. Scientific information is only as good as our ability to discover, to observe, to analyze, to classify, to experiment, and predict. But the Bible is true absolutely. And I know that there are a lot of people who will believe, well, I believe in evolution. I just believe that God caused it. You know, I've heard people before say that, you know, there was this big bang and these elements expand and all this stuff. I always want to ask them, well, where did those elements come from? Where did the big bang come from? And it doesn't matter what they say. They say, well, it all started from a one-celled animal. Well, where did the one-celled animal come from? Well, it was a primordial ooze and all of these substances. Where did all of the ooze come from? Where, you know, if you just keep talking to an evolutionist you, and keep tracing it back, even if they believe in the Big Bang billions of years ago, whatever, where did the substance come from? Sooner or later, they've got to come to the place, well, it just existed. No, there are some people that will say, well, there was a creator, and I believe that the creator is the one that started all this, but then there was the Big Bang, and then there was the evolution from a one-celled animal to this incredibly complex people that we see today. And there are some people that believe that God is the one that caused evolution over millions and millions of years. And they say things like that to try and reconcile the historical record with the Bible. But I'm telling you, that doesn't hold water. There's so many things. I've already countered this. I was using Dr. Carl Baugh to show that there are many, many flaws in the theory of evolution. It is not a proven science. It is a guess. It's a religion. People who believe in evolution, it's a religion. They're believing it. They want to believe it. I believe that it becomes attractive to people to believe that we just evolved and that we weren't created. That way we don't have to answer to a creator. So we dealt with that. Today what I'd like to do is to play an interview with Dr. Grady McMurtry. And he makes this point about that at the mouth of every major river in the world, not just in one spot, but worldwide, the rivers are depositing sediment at the mouth of these rivers, and yet the sediment is only consistent with about 4,500 
years worth of deposits, not millions and millions and millions of years of deposit. And so here is a geological fact that I believe really helps establish creationism as the Bible teaches, that the rivers and the things that we see today are after the flood, about 4,500 years ago, there's been 4,500 years worth of deposits and erosions and changes and stuff like that. But the Bible teaches that the flood is what caused these cataclysmic uh, changes in the earth. So anyway, this is Dr. Grady McMurtry. This is an interview that I did with him. I'm going to play that. So let's get into your uh, teaching here on the waters cleaved. Uh, I saw this DVD and I was just astounded as you took these maps that basically removed the water and showed the ocean floor, and you've made some tremendous statements through that. Well, and of course, also studying the Scripture, because to, to start with Noah's flood is great, but you also have to look at how God pre-planned everything. If you go to Genesis chapter 1, verses day 1, 2, and 3, and you look at the Hebrew, it says not in the beginning, but at. It's specific. It's not nebulous. God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was at the time of its creation, and then many English translations say unformed or uh, formless and void. But the correct Hebrew rendering would be without form or formless or unformed, and a void is empty, blank, or unfilled. And so, and the earth was at the time of its creation unformed and unfilled, meaning that God, like a potter, is going to take six days to finish the forming and finish the filling. There's darkness, and there's water on the surface of this round ball. And the Holy Spirit is moving, but it's a Hebrew word for brooding, meaning mm -hmm. that like a chicken broods an egg. Yeah. He starts the rotation of the earth on day one, and he's energizing systems. And then on the last thing on day one, God speaks light into existence, because he doesn't need stars to do it. Mm -hmm. On day two, it talks about there's a firmament that God is going to make. Now... What happens there is that God actually makes what we'll call an eggshell. And he separates waters above and waters below. There's still water covering the, the surface. But on day three, you'll notice that he causes the dry land to rise up out of the water and he gathers the seas. And the word is seas. Mm -hmm. Seas are shallow. Seas are up to a mile deep. But he causes the water to be gathered into one place. And the dry land appears. Now, if you had looked at the earth from a satellite at the time of creation, you would have seen 40% of the earth's surface dry land with a few islands, but the land would have been in one place. The concept of Pangea, as evolutionists would call it, is biblical. Mm -hmm. And 60% of the surface would be water. That's the shallow seas. And so what you'd have is a sea in the Pacific, a sea in the Indian Sea, and no Atlantic because the land mass is fitting together. Well, you know, I've heard this concept of Pangea. For yeah, but it's a biblical concept. It doesn't belong to the evolutionists. I, it came from the evolutionists, and so I kind of dismissed it along with everything else. But, you, but this is how evolutionists take a truth and then corrupt it. Mm -hmm. And so the concept of Pangea is a biblical Christian concept. And the separation of Pangea did occur. We'll talk about that. But evolutionists want you to think it's 120 to 200 million years, and I say it's one, and then I give you the physical evidence to prove mm -hmm. it. But Happened the reason during I'm, the flood. But exactly, and, and and why I'm mentioning Genesis day one, two, three is because you have to understand that God, in His total omniscience, 
knowing ahead of time what he's going to need to have happen later and so forth. On day three, when that dry land comes out and so forth, remember it talks about the separation of the waters above and below. Mm-hmm. And so in this firmament, God is making the, what we think of as the earth's crust. But it's more like an eggshell. There is extra moisture in the atmosphere, not a lot more to, than today, but some, 5, 10, maybe 15%. There's shallow seas one mile deep in the Indian and the Pacific, no Atlantic, the concept of Pangaea. But 10 miles down, underneath that eggshell, there's a layer of water a mile deep. In 1909, we actually found the physical evidence of that existence. Today, we now know that there's still large pockets of water that are down there that never came up the first time. Today, we now know that there's at least five to six times more water in the crust than is on the crust. This really is the water planet. Mm -hmm. But when you go down 10 miles, the Earth gets warmer at 90 degrees per mile as you go down initially. So that water is at 900 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. Now, simplistically, it's super hot water. It's actually called supercritical water, but it's simply hot water above 212 that's liquid. But now, how does that happen? I thought it would turn well, to steam. Just but like a pressure cooker. Pressure. But you have a pressure cooker. Okay. You're familiar with those. Mm-hmm. And you know that if you keep enough pressure on water, you can get water that's liquid up to, say, 280 in a kitchen and so forth. Okay. And some people will understand about a pressure cooker that didn't hold on. Yeah. And it destroys the kitchen. Well, that's because liquid steam, and that's what this is, liquid steam is perhaps the second most powerful force in nature behind atomic energy. I mean, we launch launch planes on a U.S. aircraft carrier to 200 miles an hour in 2.7 seconds based on the power of liquid steam. Hmm. And so this is a tremendously powerful thing. It's what causes volcanic eruptions. Hot rock doesn't explode. It's the hot water that explodes. And so God put it down there in his foreknowledge, knowing he'd need it 1,656 years later. Mm-hmm. And when he says it's time for the, for the flood, and if you go to Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, what I call the convenient star verse of the Bible, Genesis 7, 11, uh-huh. <laughs> when it says that the fountains of the great deep yeah. or the springs of waters burst forth or broke open, the actual Hebrew word that is used there is to cleave. Now, I'm a full-time missionary. I'm working in 20 languages on five continents. And I am not concerned about a translation by word, because you know as well as I do in your foreign work. There's no such thing as a, a perfect translation. You always lose something in the translation. And so what I'm concerned about is an interpretation by concept. And the concept there is, the Hebrew word is cleave. Now, to cleave means to come into a knife edge. Uh, meat cleaver is a big mm-hmm. meat knife, right? Mm-hmm. And so what it says is the water's knifed through from below at the time of the flood. And, of course, when you see the maps that we have showing the earth with no water, and these are highly detailed maps of the earth's surface without water. We've extracted it all. You can see the actual proof of where the water's knifed through from below. You can see how the continents were separated. You can see that they would float rapidly because they're on a layer of water, just as a boat pushing away from a dock is very easy. A child can push a boat away from a dock. So since the continents, although they're in one piece to start with, when they're knifed through from below, break the continents up into smaller pieces, they're big boats. We call them continents, but they're just big boats. Mm -hmm. And because they're on a layer of water, they can slip slide away very, very quickly. And as the water comes up, the continents are moving apart. But as the waters come up, just like a boat with a hole in it, the water goes up, the boat goes down. 
And so the continents are sliding apart rapidly. This only takes one year. But they're also settling because as the water's coming out from underneath, they're trading places. So the water comes out, is now on top, the land sinks down, locks in. The King James Bible has a very interesting term. It says that the surface of the earth is supported on pillars and sockets. That's the King James mm-hmm. Version. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, when, the, when this eggshell breaks apart and then is sinking because the water is coming out from underneath, it's not going to be two flat surfaces meeting each other and squeezing it all out. Instead, it's going to be like knuckles, if you, if you allow me. So in between these two knuckles will be the, that's a socket. This knuckle is a pillar. And so it comes in and locks in this way, but that leaves space in here where water is trapped, and we've still found that. We found a sea of water underneath the Gobi Desert, mm-hmm. but it's miles down. You know, there's enough water below the Gobi if you could dig that far down, but we can't. But if you could dig that far down, you can make the Gobi Desert, you know, a garden. Wow. And so all of these processes are going on, and we have the physical evidence that that's absolutely true. And once the earth is flooded, if you take a look at Psalm 104, you have the chronology of the flood, verses 5 through 9. The earth is flooded, the water stands above the mountains, but these are shallow mountains. It's not like the mountains around here. Scientifically, a mountain only has to be 1,000 feet or more of elevational difference in a local area. So the mountains before the flood were 1, 2, 3, 4, 5,000 feet high, but capable of being covered with one mile of water. But that water erodes those mountains that existed from creation of the flood and makes the wet mud layers that are redeposited, the sedimentary rock layers you see around here. Mm-hmm. Then it says in Psalm 104, verse 7, the waters go away. Verse 8, the mountains rose up, the valley sank down. Verse 9, God promises He'll never flood the earth again. There's a judgment by fire in Second Peter, but there won't be another flood. Mm-hmm. And the mountains that you see around here are the mountains that rose up, verse 8, after the flood. And we see now this all these is things. verse 8 of what? Psalm 104. Psalm 104. Verses 5 through 9. Psalm 104 is one of the eight creation psalms. Mm-hmm. And Psalm 104 is a summary psalm because the first four verses summarize the creation week of Genesis chapter 1. Verses 5 through 9 give you the chronology of the flood with a specific detail. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. And so that's a tremendous vindication. Okay, of so you're world. saying that after Noah's flood, there was a lot of volcanic activity that well, created for, there, the massive mountains we have today? Well, the mountains around here are uplifted. That's verse 8. These are uplifted sedimentary layers. But there's a tremendous amount of volcanism as well. When the earth cracks open at the time, allowing the water's cleaving, many people don't realize this, but volcanoes explode because of hot water. And they're not just hot rock. 20 to 70% of the material coming out of a volcano is hot water. That's what caused Mount St. Helens to erupt, mm-hmm. Mount Tambora, Krakatoa, Pinatubo. I mean, all these eruptions you might be familiar with of, of recent time or beyond. Let me just say that on your uh, video on the waters cleaved, you have those things documented, yes, the sir. years and the relative strength of them, and it yep. is really a powerful presentation. Well, thank you. Um, but, but what happens at the time of the flood, there's not been earthquake and volcanic activity. But when, once you have an earthquake, once you have a land cracking open, then you have opportunity for hot rock and hot water to come up from below. So initially it's trapped. But when the earth breaks up and the water's knife through from below, there are volcanoes in, in Israel, as you know. And the whole, whole Jordan Valley is one volcanic rift. 
you know, when you're standing on top of the Mount of Beatitudes, you can see Mount Hatim, which is just an extinct volcano to the west. Or if you go up on the Golan Heights, uh, going towards the Syrian border and so forth, you can see several volcanoes. You can see it from Google Earth. I mean, you, all you got to do is look. And that whole area is very volcanic, and the whole you know, Caesarea Philippi and so forth is where the crack begins, and goes right down the Jordan River, goes down what is now the Red Sea. Now, that wasn't the Jordan River, and it wasn't the Red mm -hmm. Sea before the flood, but it is now. Mm -hmm. And that crack continues out underneath the ocean into the Indian Ocean and goes around the world, breaks off three continents from the others. They slip slide very quickly. And they are then covered by water, covered with wet mud layers. The flood ends. Those layers erode. Others are lifted, folded. And it, you do have tremendous amount of volcanic activity. And that causes an ice age immediately after the flood as well. And this is also mentioned in the Bible in Job, for instance. So can you uh, show our viewers yeah, sure. uh, some of these things on your map? Let's take a little look. this was very interesting. Yeah, for instance, you see when God created the earth here... There's extra moisture in the upper atmosphere. On the That's surface, what's represented here in this is paint. This is extra moisture, uh -huh. just as an illustration. Yep. Um, then you have the surface, but the surface is like an eggshell. And 40% is dry land and 60% is water surface. But this is an eggshell that's 10 miles deep. Then uh, This is an exaggerated view. It's obviously not to scale. Sure. You couldn't see it. But then there's this layer of water down below that's a mile deep. And then below that you have the rest of the earth. Now, all of these things are established in Scripture, such as the fountains of the deep were broken up. And that's and, what he's referring to, is this layer of water down below here. And people just skip over that, but this Bible is very accurate, scientific. Exactly. That's why I mentioned day one, day two, day three, yeah. because it talks about how God creates the earth. Then He creates mm -hmm. this layer with waters above and below, causes the dry land to come out, the separation of the waters, and Pangea is a biblical concept. Mm -hmm. And then 1,656 years later, that water is going to come up from below. And that's what's going to cause that one supercontinent to be broken up into smaller ones, allow them to move rapidly in only one year. Mm -hmm. Remember, the earth is only covered with water for 300 days. If you just simply take a look at the scriptures and simply read chapter 7, chapter 8, mm -hmm. uh, they're in the ark a total of 377 days, yeah. 370 from the day the waters start to come out. But the water only covers the earth for 300. Mm -hmm. Okay. I've added all that up. Well, that's just it. So you've got your waters above and then down below the waters below, meaning underneath, and then the shallow seas on the surface. Now, these are highly detailed maps of the earth's surface with the water removed. Now, for instance, uh, I live in Florida, in Orlando, but here's the Mississippi River. And at the mouth of the Mississippi, there's only 4,500 years worth of mud. Notice that the Gulf of Mexico is a big empty hole in the ground. This is not feet, that's meters there. So this is 3.8 kilometers down, a little over two miles. So you've got a, a big empty hole in the ground with a flat surf, sand surface at the bottom and only 4,500 years worth of mud. Now, if the Mississippi were millions of years old, then the entire Gulf of Mexico would be filled in. I mean, this is one of the simplest and easiest ways yeah. to see the Earth is young and evolution is relying And you've also they say made, it's old. you've also made that point that every major river in the world is every the major exact river in the world. same thing. And we can see that. Now, uh, I do missionary work in Brazil every year. And here's Brazil. Now, this is northern Brazil. Here's the Amazon River. Mm -hmm. There's only 4,500 years worth of mud at the mouth of the Amazon. And so that would be right in right here. here. And there's a flat sand bottom right up against the continent on both sides. Now, evolutionists talk about Pangaea. Everybody in school has seen that the continents do sort of kind of look like they fit together. But you have to ask yourself a question. 
if you want to know how well they did or did not fit together, would you look at where sea level is today, where they look sort of kind of like, particularly South America and Africa, I mean, everybody can see that. Mm -hmm. But would you want to look there, or would you want to take a look at the edge of the continent? Well, you don't want to look at where sea level is, you want to take a look at the edge of the continent, that's the edge of the continental shelf. Now today, the continental shelves are underwater, but at one time, they were dry land. And when you take a look at the entire Atlantic here, You'll notice, for instance, and I'll go back for just a second, if you take a look at the Gulf of Mexico, here's a big wide continental shelf on the west coast of Florida. Mm -hmm. It's over 100 miles wide. If you go down to South America, to Argentina, you have a continental shelf that's 200 miles wide off of Argentina. And you'll notice that at the edge of the continental shelf, it's not a sawtooth like it is at sea level. Right. It's a nice smooth V. And if you take a look at the Brazil area, you have an in, out, in, out that fits the in, out, in, out in Africa and this nice smooth V here. There's only 4,500 years worth of mud at the mouth of the Congo River. And if you could see this in an actual round globe, because on a flat surface there's distortion of the top and bottom, but mm -hmm. if you could see this in a round globe, you would actually see that the continental shelf of Greenland perfectly, and I mean perfectly, fits the continental shelf of Norway. It's like two pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. And you'll see this crack going up the middle here. Now, this is where you have the eruption of hot rock and hot water. The water's cleaving from below. You see it fits the general shape of the continents. You can see it clearly goes like this, which is what you'd expect if something nice through from below. You'd uh -huh. expect it to go like that. And you'll see here stretch marks. Now, stretch marks only happen when you have something happen fast, like pregnancy, nine months. Yeah, I'm familiar with those. Not yep. for myself, but my yeah. wife. Yeah, you, any, any husband seen them, I think, if <laughs> they've had right. children. But we have these stretch marks showing that this all happened fast. And then if we take a look at the... Now, Indian, what is, excuse me, what sure. does the stretch mark mean in geological terms? How does that Again, mean rapid that Again, rapid moving. Now, evolutionists would want you to believe that this occurred slowly and gradually. But if that were true, just think with me for a second. If the continents fit together, moved apart as they claim at an inch and a half, two inches per year for 120, 200 million years, it depends on the evolution you ask, then think about this. Mud would wash in from the sides because rain would fall on the continents. Mm -hmm. Mud would wash in from the sides, from both sides, and you'd have a thick layer of mud going across there. But there's no thick layer of mud. Look carefully. Andrew, you see here? This is a flat sand bottom off of Africa and Europe. Here you have a flat sand bottom. As I mentioned, again, uh, the Amazon River has 4,500 years worth of mud, but there's a flat sand bottom on both sides. Same thing with the North American continent here. There is no thick layer of mud. Their story, if you excuse the expression, doesn't hold water. Creationism and evolution are not compatible. There is no such thing as or theistic evolution. It doesn't line up with the Word of God. I guess people could say it was theistic, but they'd have to say that God did it completely contrary to what He revealed in His Word because the Word of God does not teach an old earth uh, creation. And I know that there's a lot of people that think, well, you can't say that. Yes, I can. I can say it based on the Bible, which is sufficient for me. But you know what? There, are, there is a lot of scientific information that would also disprove the ancient age of the earth. And um, I tell you, there's just a multitude of information on this. There's entire ministries that have raised up to counter all of these lies and things that we're being told about evolution. What I'd like to do today is go back to an interview that I did with Dr. Grady McMurtry. And he's got this series entitled The Waters Claved.
I saw a video on this, and I tell you, it was astounding to me. And one of the things that he's going to be talking about today, I'll just give a little introduction. He actually does these, um, I don't know what the proper term is, but they have used some kind of imagery to find these continental, uh, these uh, ridges that are in the ocean. And you can see where all at one time the earth was all in one continent and these ridges split and divided. And you can see how that the like Africa could fit into North and, and South America and fit in there and that these were broken apart when these ridges came up. And this is exactly what the Bible describes during Noah's flood, how that the fountains of the deep were broken up. And he's going to literally show you these images and show you how that these things explain so much of this sedimentary deposits that the geologists talk about. It all happened through the flood, not over millions and millions and millions of years. And as a matter of fact, if you go to those deep rifts in the bottom of the ocean, if they were millions of years ago that these kind of things happened, there should be all of this deposit there, and yet it's not there. So anyway, I believe Dr. McMurtry can make this point a lot better than I can. So I want to go back to this interview that I did with him and play that. And I just encourage you to listen and to receive these truths and let it strengthen your faith in the biblical account. God is more accurate and up-to-date than any of the so-called science that's being crammed down our throat today. Today I'm continuing an interview with Dr. Grady McMurtry and we've been talking about some information I saw on a DVD he put out entitled The Waters Cleaved. And this is about Noah's Flood, and we've been talking about how just the information on this DVD that he presented and the things concerning Noah's Flood totally disprove evolution. We were talking about the Pangaea and the continental drift, and you were talking about that these stretch marks as you uh, described this uh, rift that goes all the way around the world, that these stretch marks are, are proof that it happened relatively quickly. Right. You also made the point that the uh, deposits at the mouth of every uh, major river in the world only have about 4,500 years worth of sediment. Correct. And if evolution was true and it took hundreds of millions of years, there would be all of this sediment stretched all across the Atlantic, the Pacific, as these things well, move. This is, see, you wouldn't even see the stretch marks because there'd be mud on top. All right, and but so the my... sheer fact we can see them, and we have what are called abyssal plains, flat sand bottoms right up against the side of the continents, proves that that, that mud never came into the Atlantic in the first place. Okay, so my question at the end of the program yesterday, and I want to start today, is how do the evolutionists deal with this? Well, I think that you said it very well. They refuse to think about it. They certainly censure it from anybody else knowing about it. Even if they know about it, they don't want anybody else to know about it. And if they do know about it, then they make up fairy tales for adults when they're confronted. For instance, think with me for a second. When the continents were fitting together and the hot rock, hot water come up from below. Now there's some other things we need to really take a look at in the Indian that are very interesting, but in the Atlantic here, think with me. When this material comes out from the middle, mm -hmm. then the oldest material should be on the edge near the continents because new material would be coming out of the middle, correct? Right. Uh, so say that again. Okay. I'm not sure new, I got new, you. Well, new material would be coming out of the middle, right. but as they're moving apart, that means the older material should be at the end That's near true. the continents right. because new material would be coming out of the middle, correct? Mm -hmm. 
But if you, if you do potassium argon dates on these things, and, and I will tell you, potassium argon is not reliable, but I'm simply saying the evolutionists have done this. We've taken uh -huh. cores. And what you find out is the oldest material is in the middle and the youngest is at the, at the edge. That's contradictory to their position, which again shows there's a problem. And how do they deal with this problem? They don't. They ignore it. They have no way of doing it. And, of course, you probably have heard about um, magnetic reversals and the Earth's magnetic field yep. has flipped north uh -huh. and south. First of all, that's, again, a fairy tale for adults. There is absolutely nowhere in the bottom of the Atlantic that you can take a compass and have it turn 180 degrees around. What you have is, the, first of all, doing cores, and this has all been cored, you find that there is a totally random pattern. What you find is that there are strong north-south and weak north-south. And they, they say the weak is reversal. But it's not. It's not a reversal. It's just a weak. And we have actually found that if you have two strongs, you can induce a south in between the two pointing north. So they don't have a leg to stand on with mm -hmm. this stuff at all. And this shows that it all happened very quickly in only one year, as the Bible says. And when you take a look at the Indian Ocean here, here again we have a crack. But notice if you follow the crack back here. Now, you'll notice there's a split. If we take a look here, you can see there's a split in the Indian Ocean uh -huh. that comes to the Atlantic. But if you go to the Indian Ocean, you have a split going east and west. But if you follow that crack north here, it's just one crack goes to about the equator, turns about 45 degrees northwest, goes towards Saudi Arabia. Then it turns, comes right straight down the middle of the Gulf of Aden, and you can see the crack is getting smaller. But it then turns and goes right straight at the bottom of the Red Sea from the south to the north end, getting smaller. But here at the north end at Elat in Israel, that crack turns and goes right straight up to the Jordan River Valley. It goes right straight through the Dead Sea, right straight up the Jordan, right straight through the Sea of Galilee, mm -hmm. right straight up the River Jordan, and starts here at Caesarea Philippi. So is that the end of this crack? So that's where it begins. So, and that's you, not the end, that's the beginning. And so you can say that because of the way it widens out as it goes along? First of all, you can see it starts very, very small, very tight. And of course, initially, what's going to happen? You have tremendous pressure at that point, and a crack starts to form. And it forms what is going south there, the Jordan River Valley, today. Mm -hmm. Turns, forms what is today, the bottom of the Red Sea. And then comes out here, at that point, it is now underwater. Remember, there's one mile of water there now. Mm-hmm. And then that crack comes out, goes here, and it actually goes all the way around the world. We'll take a look at it in the Pacific, too, but it's 40,000 miles long. Wow. It's called, altogether, the entire unit is called the Mid-Oceanic Ridge. But I said that there was a sea one mile deep here, and then there was a mile of water that came up from below, correct? Mm -hmm. What's one proof of that? Well, first of all, you can see it here, obviously, but if you take a look from India to Australia along the south slope of Indonesia, there are two continental shelves. One is a mile deep, and it breaks off and goes another mile deep, showing that as the ocean floor, the water comes out from underneath, the ocean floor sinks, breaks off and leaves a double continental shelf here as well. There's something else that you can see. So the first continental here. shelf would have been the one that was one mile deep, and then as the water mile. came up, it dropped another mile. Because a mile of water came in from underneath, right. it has to drop another mile. So you've mile. got two continental shelves. And that gives you this double stair step here. And so do you see that anywhere else? You do, because in the Pacific, you can actually see here's a crack coming out of the Indian Ocean and breaking Antarctica off of Australia. Uh -huh. Now, on a round globe, which I do use a round globe when I'm teaching this live presentations, 
you can actually see that Antarctica perfectly fits into the southern coast of Australia. Again, there's some distortion on a flat map. But on a flat map, the distortion. But you can basically see it. It's just that it's not as detailed uh -huh. as it would be on a round globe. Well, but it's still very obvious. But it is quite obvious. And you'll even notice that there are actually double continental shelves along the south slope of Australia here. But the crack goes out across the Pacific, comes up along the coast of California to Alaska, through the Aleutians, through Kamchatka, Japan, the Philippines, comes across New Guinea, out to Samoa, turns 90 degrees at Samoa, goes right straight through New Zealand, and meets itself again here. Now, is there a significance that all of these ridges and stuff are connected worldwide? They show that it was one occurrence it's, versus Well, it shows multiple. a lot of things. It shows being one occurrence. And, again, you mentioned double shells. Well, you'll notice it from the Gulf of Alaska along the south slope of the Aleutian Islands to Kamchatka. You have that two-step staircase. Mm -hmm. There's a continental shelf one mile deep. Then it breaks off and goes another mile deep. But the same is true here from Kamchatka past Japan, the Philippines, China, and Vietnam here. Also, though, if you'll notice, uh, Andrew, the, the western continental shelf of New Zealand perfectly fits the eastern continental shelf of Australia, and you can see where there's a crack here and stretch marks, where New Zealand mm -hmm. moved rapidly away from Australia at the time of the flood as well. Now, of course, this from here in the Baja all the way around the Pacific here and through New Zealand is a part of the Ring of Fire the volcanic yeah. ring of fire. Uh -huh. But of course there's another crack that comes down along here through the Andes that's part of it as well. But you'll notice all these little dimples and dots north of the equator here that are underwater. Those are 20,000 underwater volcanoes. We'd mentioned about how there were so many thousands of volcanoes. Mm -hmm. But you have some like the Hawaiian Islands that actually stick out of the water after the flood. Mm -hmm. But there are thousands and thousands of volcanoes that are underwater. And we can see so many things with this. Now, this is a map of the entire world showing the entire extent. You can see it starts at Caesarea Philippi, comes down the Jordan, down the Red Sea, out the Gulf of Aden, splits here in the Indian Ocean, going around the Pacific there. There's another crack that comes here up the Atlantic. And you asked about where does it end? Well, there's the end right there when it hits northern Russia. It goes sort of past the North Pole. And... And as I like to say euphemistically, it runs out of steam when it hits northern Russia. <laughs> but all these things are clearly visible. If now, you're again, the distortion of a flat map. Is this the same point as over here? Well, what this is, see, it comes up here, curves past the North Pole, because the North Pole is not on here. goes up, curves past the North Pole, and ends there. Okay. That is the end of it right there. All right. And, That's of course, amazing. the significance of starting at Caesarea Philippi is beyond belief. Well, I was just going to say that, you know, this is prior to the nation of Israel and stuff, but yet everything is established in the heart of God. Well, There's and, bound to and be significance. remember, this is where Jesus takes his disciples, mm -hmm. walks them to Caesarea Philippi, says to them, who do men say the Son of Man is? And they say, well, some say you're this and some say you're that. And he says, yeah, well, that's what they say. And then he asks one of the two most important questions in the entire New Testament. Yeah, that's what they say, but who do you say mm -hmm. that I am? Mm -hmm. And he's asking that at the very spot where the crack starts and breaks off three continents. It's the very spot where the Jordan River starts. It's clear living water coming in right out of a rock. You've been there. That's amazing. Yeah, I've been there. I've seen it. And, and so this is not coincidence. Jesus knew exactly where he was. And, of course, as I say, he was there before that crack was. That's right. But the fact of the matter is that this has tremendous biblical significance. 
And all of this, uh, you were talking about the power of these volcanoes. Uh, uh, I don't want to get you out of sequence on this, but all of this volcano releasing that steam and all of this stuff into the atmosphere, uh, this would account for what is uh, often said by the evolutionist as the ice age, which is well, supposed to be long, Exactly. Long Evolutionists talk about multiple ice ages. They believe in tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of years. The fact is that there was only one ice age. It occurred after the flood of Noah, it was caused by the events that initiated the flood of Noah. Now, so it's, it's not, actually a result of it's, the flood. It's, it's not instantaneous. It's a result of, because what happens is you have this tremendous amount of hot water coming to the surface, mixing with what are already subtropical seas. Remember, the earth is a subtropical from pole to pole prior to the flood. Mm -hmm. And we have the physical evidence to prove that too. For instance, in Greenland in 1883, we found fossilized breadfruit trees. Wow. Well, breadfruit trees don't grow in freezing conditions, you know. And recently, we found fossil insects and fossil dinosaurs within 200 miles of the South Pole. Hmm. So clearly, it was a lot was... warmer in the past there. Uh -huh. And so what happens is you have this hot water coming out, mixing with what's already there. When you have hot water, you know as well as I do, you have tremendous amounts of evaporation. The hotter the water, the more water evaporates. Mm -hmm. So it's evaporating very quickly. But you have thousands of volcanoes all going off at the same time. That causes ash and other aerosols to go into the atmosphere and block out sunlight, which causes the atmosphere to cool rapidly. Now these are the perfect conditions to build polar ice caps because when you have a lot of moisture being evaporated into cold air, you have the perfect conditions for ice snow formation and the polar ice caps start to form as a result of being in the initial events of the flood. And then, you know, we weren't there. This is our best estimate. Our best estimate is that the Ice Age starts initially, but again, it is nothing to be worried about initially. But it actually increases in intensity for probably about 500 years. This would be past the time of the man Job. And the first mention of ice and snow in the Bible is in the book of Job. And then because the volcanoes settle down, the ash comes down by precipitation or gravity and so forth, the sunlight starts to come back in, the polar ice caps melt back to roughly where they are today. And so the whole thing lasts perhaps around 700 years. Now this would be during the time of uh, Abraham, wasn't he? Oh, absolutely. Abraham's a young man at the time that Job's alive. Uh -huh. So you know, the book of Job is written basically 2000 B.C. Abraham would have been a young man at the time. And, uh, of course, Job's life. Uh, and so, yes, this is, you know, from a chronological standpoint when it's occurring. Now, here's a total layman asking a dumb question, but I bet there's a lot of other people watching, watching this whole thing. Most people kind of consider that the Ice Age was like worldwide. Well, and uh, unfortunately, as I tell people, never get your education from government-run television, National Geographic, Discovery Channel, Animal Planet, Hollywood. <laughs> you know, the, the animated movies and the, the other movies that Hollywood has made in recent years about ice ages and catastrophes of that sort make you think the earth becomes a big snowball. But that's simply not true. Well, it couldn't be if Abraham and the things uh, recorded in Scripture, you know, continued on. That right. wasn't during an ice age where they were. Well, let's take a look real quick. Uh, this is a graphic just to show, again, how the hot water coming out from below would allow the continents to move rapidly. Mm -hmm. Now, Gaios in the Pacific prove, again, that the ocean floor sank rapidly one mile at the time of the flood. 
But here's a chart showing some relatively sized volcanoes of the past. And I do a whole presentation on Mount St. Helens and the rapid formation of the Grand Canyon. And that's 1980. It produced one cubic kilometer of ash. But if you take a look at Krakatoa, the sound heard around the world in 1883, it produced 18 cubic kilometers. 18 now, you times know, I've never heard any of these things. Probably many of our viewers haven't. But I guess all of this is documented. Oh, yes, sir. Okay. Now, Krakatoa is in Indonesia. The explosion was so violent, it was heard in downtown London, England. Wow, and this is that's 1883. What, that's 1883, and that's why it's called the sound heard around the world. However, Tambora is also in Indonesia. Again, these are right on the equator. In 1815, it produced 80 cubic kilometers of ash and ejecta. Look it up. 1816, Europe had the year without summer. It snowed in all 12 months of the year in Europe in 1816 because this one volcano cooled the earth so rapidly that in one year we have snow in all 12 months in Europe. Now, when you say Europe, what part are you talking about specifically? I'm talking about the entire European continent. So that would have been London, Berlin, any of those places? Yes. Wow. And, well, it can get much bigger and much worse than well, that. Well, I've been there in the summer, and I guarantee you, <laughs> for it to snow all 12 months of the year would definitely be a different climate well, than we Mount have Mount Pinatubo now. in the Philippines, again, near the equator, erupted in 1991. It dropped the Earth's temperature, atmospheric temperature, 1.3 degrees in one year. Again, this just shows you the power of volcanoes to cool the Earth. Now imagine what happens if you have thousands of volcanoes all going up at the same time. You're going to get an ice age. And we know, for instance, uh, the super volcanoes that occurred at Yellowstone and other eruptions were even much larger than this. And, of course, this is what's happening at the time of the flood. We have super volcanoes erupting, thousands of other volcanoes erupting. So what would you say at the time of the flood, how many volcanoes? We don't even Hundreds? know. Hundreds? Well, there's, there's in the area of 30,000, 40,000 on Earth today. The vast majority of them are older. Some are new, of course. Well, this may be off the subject, but here's a question for you that I bet you can answer. This whole thing about global warming and stuff, if all of this ash was thrown into the atmosphere and stuff, and yet the Earth recovered in a relatively short period of time, doesn't this suggest that the Earth has a mechanism to be able to adjust and handle these things and it's not out of control? Well, I appreciate that, Andrew. I have 40 pages in my book on why global warming isn't true and not caused by humans. Mm -hmm. We can't cool the Earth and we can't warm it either one. But the earth has a mechanism to be able to handle whatever's thrown at it. Like God, these God has put in mechanisms to handle this. And the two things that drive climate and weather change on earth have nothing to do with humans. Mm -hmm. Sunspot activity on the sun has been documented to be perfectly in line with what happens with climate and weather. And the second thing but is volcanic is, eruptions. But that's our uh, fluorocarbons that are affecting the sun. Nope. <laughs> Of course, People I, I, can't answer that, can I, they? No, and of course I go into things like that, in, including if we're causing the polar ice caps to melt, why at the same time are the polar ice caps on Mars melting? Mm -hmm. It's not us, it's variations in the sun's activity. Yeah, and there's cycles that the Earth goes through. Yeah. I'm sorry, I got you all. No, no, but, but I love that subject because I, I just bury those and environmental so you terrorists. Have, you have a lot of... Uh, things on creationism way off the topic of just Noah's flood. Oh, yes. I mean, literally talk on 50 subjects in a, in a moment's notice. That's awesome. But we have a whole two-hour presentation why global warming is not true That's and not good. caused by people. But this map, you've talked about the ice age that occurred after the flood. Now, this map, regardless of whether you're a creationist or evolutionist, makes no difference. This map shows the maximum extent of polar ice at any time in the northern hemisphere in the past, period. 
And the southern hemisphere, it's irrelevant because there's nobody down there at the end of the flood. You know. All right, so Grady, the, is this accepted? I mean, would even evolutionists accept that this is the maximum extent? Yes. And I, I, now, I've been in Russia many more times than you have, but I have been between St. Petersburg and Moscow where the ice stopped. Mm-hmm. Ter- terminal moraines, just like in Ohio, the terminal moraines. Think about it. This map shows you the maximum extent of polar ice at any time in the past, regardless of whether you believe in creation or evolution, right? Mm-hmm. And you will notice the ice only gets as far south as the Canadian-U.S. border, except for the area right around the Great Lakes, basically, and New England. It covers sea ice, Greenland, Iceland, of course. It covers Ireland, Scotland, England. It covers Scandinavia, smaller portions of northern Russia. But again, the ice never got as far south as Berlin. Mm-hmm. The ice never got as far south as Moscow. And, of course, this map also shows us how the people came from the Tower of Babel experience and got to North and South America. They simply walked. But the fact of the matter is that the Ice Age is not nearly as catastrophic as people have been taught or influenced by things like Hollywood-made movies. Dr. Grady McMurtry and Dr. Carl Ball, who are experts in geology and in all of these scientists type of things, and they are showing from uh, secular evidence that the Bible's account of creation is accurate and not evolution. And one of the things that I want to do today is go back to the Creation Evidence Museum that's in Glen Rose, Texas. And I was there with Dr. Carl Ball, and he brought this, uh, he calls it a wall of truth, and it's actual uh, strata of rock that have been brought from other places, and and they've accumulated this, And according to the evolutionary model, this strata of rock from way down, I may get some of these details wrong, but Dr. Ball, he will say it just exactly right. But from the pre-Cambrian stratus all the way up, it's supposed to represent something like 550 million years of evolution. And according to the evolutionary model, these layers, different layers that you can obviously see in rock, you can see it anywhere anywhere that you live. As I drive up and down the pass in Colorado, I see all of these different layers of rock. And according to the evolutionists, they are separated by millions and millions, even tens of millions of years. And yet, in these strata, you can find things like a trilobite that is a one-celled animal that is incredibly complex, but it's supposed to be way down at the very bottom, one of the very first things. And yet Dr. Ball has a sandal with a trilobite print in it showing you that people and trilobites existed at the same time. All we have now is trilobites in fossil records, but that fossil existed during mankind. There is a quote from, um, um, anyway, I'm not going to mention the guy's name because I may get it wrong. I may say something wrong, but there is a famous evolutionist who said, if you could somehow or another put mankind and dinosaurs together at the same time, it would completely undo the evolution model. And yet we have evidence of that. And this little trilobite being in uh, one of the sandal prints, and then there's, there's all kinds of things. There's these things called plumes, I think, that is an actual plant or tree that reaches up through what is supposed to be hundreds of millions years worth of deposits. And that couldn't have happened unless these deposits came very quickly. So anyway, I want to go to this wall of truth 
with Dr. Carl Ball and let him just explain some of these things to you at the Creation Evidence Museum in Glen Rose, Texas. The moment you enter the door to the Creation Evidence Museum, you're immediately confronted with a wall. This wall is genuine. This rock and this coal are not fabricated. We had this rock brought from the various locations throughout the United States where these layers, according to geologists, were formed. And uh, this is the geologic column. According to evolutionary theory, that geologic column represents 550 million years of development from early sea bugs called trilobites all the way up to man and his companions. First, in the Cambrian rock, all the way down at what's assigned 550 million years, we have a human sandal print. Now this is a replication. You saw the original human sandal print. Well now, immediately, that blows evolutionary theory. And so the lower on this thing, this is the older according to evolution, yes. and up at the top is the more recent. So yes. here is this sandal down here at the very beginning of the fossil record. At the very beginning? Hundreds of, of years, millions of years before it was supposed to be there. 550 million years. <laughs> Simply assign awesome. that age. There is no way to prove that that rock is right. any older than any other rock. Sure. Then we come to the coal above that. This is the genuine coal. Here we have a replication of the cup. You saw that cup mm -hmm. a few moments ago. Yep. And that was found in a huge chunk of coal by Frank Kennard. Uh, then we have in the Permian, a human footprint. There was a trail of nine of these, more coal. We have what's called the clastic dikes, the rolling of the material while it was still pliable. Then we go up to the big dinosaur bone. That's, that was the discovery bone and in that location, there were 14 other dinosaurs and we're still excavating at that site. Above that, if you look, you'll see the hammer, a replication mm -hmm. of the hammer. You saw the original a moment ago. That's in rock that's supposed to be 140 million years old. Over to the right, the human finger in rock that's supposed to be 110. Then you see the Willet print and then you see the Delt print. Among these, you have plants that are polystrate. That poly means many, straight means layers. So while this plant was in place, these other layers formed. They had to form very rapidly. Because uh, according to the evolutionary, this, this period from here to here would have been a million, hundreds of millions oh, of tens, years. Tens of millions of and years. And yet you've got one plant running up through that. That kind of disproves that theory oh, right yes. there. Yes, and these polystrates are found throughout the geologic column, but they're ignored. If you read the geologic literature, you can't find polystrate fossil put there throughout the geologic column. So Carr, can you explain how all of these layers that were placed down, how did, how did all of these layers come? Was it the one flood that produced all of the different layers? The single flood, all of these are sedimentary deposits. Some of these deposits run over 11 states and into Canada. Some of these deposits, like those we're working in here, run adjacent to the material that bands the entire globe Sedimentary deposits are water-borne deposits. Mm -hmm. They have to be laid down very rapidly. In order for fossils 
to be preserved, you can't have exposure to the atmosphere. They have to be encased very rapidly in the sedimentary material, otherwise they biodegrade very fast. And then they're compressed once they're in this material. So every one of these layers, including the coal, made of organic material, then compressed because of this weight, uh, and I mentioned earlier as we dialogued, that uh, we can make coal in one hour. So this coal was produced because of the weight of the other layers on top of it, That's because correct. of the heat, because of uh, those five things that you were talking about. That's correct. So the entire geologic column does not represent what we have been taught 550 million years of evolutionary time, but represents the activity in a worldwide flood. But let me finally mention this. At the bottom is the granite. The scripture says in the first chapter of Genesis, God said, let the dry land appear on day three, and the dry land appeared. Just let the dry land appear, the dry land appeared, mm -hmm. just like that. The base to the dry land is the granite. And according to evolutionary theory, it took 50 million years for that granite to form. But the scripture says, let the dry land appear, and the dry land appeared. In one day. Not only one day, in one sentence. Well, that's true, but I mean, it was what, the third day of creation, day it of wasn't creation? spread out over hundreds of millions of years. That's right. But watch closely. In that granite are these tiny little halos. Among those halos, without any associated daughter relationships, meaning they're isolated, so we have to consider them as specific units. We have the halos left by polonium-214. The half-life of polonium-214 is 0.000164 seconds. Now, you're a math major. That's quick. That's quick. It's faster than you can snap your finger. Yeah. That means that that granite was created, functionally mature, and recording what was in it, recording the pleochroic halos faster than we can snap our finger. In other words, what you found today is there is evidence for creation, just like the Bible said. Now you stated that very good, but let me give a layman's interpretation that this means that for those radioactive things, that their half-life is less than the snap of a finger. If it took longer than that to form this rock, all of those isotopes would have disappeared. Sure they they would have been gone. So for all of these isotopes to be locked in granite, it means that granite was formed quicker than that or those isotopes would all be gone. You're right. That's awesome. That's my layman's explanation of your technical thing. Good job. Good but job. this is great. This is just tremendous. So all of these layers, uh, how, how did they get there at different times? Or were they all put there simultaneously? Not, or? not simultaneously. It took a year, you know. Like waves? Waves, sure. And, and it took... Now, the fountains of the great deep caused the flood at the beginning. They ruptured. Mm -hmm. Then the windows of heaven were opened, channel windows were cut into that canopy, and it began to rain, ran 40 days and nights. But it took 150 days for the fountains to be assuaged, to stop. Right. So we have 150 days of this material being ruptured up from the internal structure of the earth, and then spread out. And some of it spread out over maybe a few, what's now a few states, some over many states, some of it 
worldwide because you'd have tremendous amounts of it, smaller amounts of it, and that's what we find in the geologic record. You'll find sheets of it running over a quarter of a state, sheets of it running over two or three states, 11 states, etc., and some of it running around the world. Yes. Now let me ask you what this white thing is here that goes up into a different strata okay. of rock. What is this? Okay, that's a plume. So we have represented, I'm glad Bob called attention to the polystrate fossil showing that this was in place and these formed very rapidly uh, around this. So again, we're talking about So this one plant did not live hundreds of millions of years. <laughs> that, that's right. But this plume is very significant. Here we have the white material. Is that and, limestone or? Uh, that's, that's a limestone and that's from Utah where they have a lot of these plumes. But the other material is laid in uh, tidal impacts one layer after another upon it. But it is so pliable that its weight causes that plume to thrust up into it. So in other words, all of that is pliable. It is not yet cured, lithified, hardened into real hard rock. That shows it's rapid yeah. and it's in succession. And, and so all of this, all of this weight that was upon it just forced some of that pliable material up, up into the cracked material because that was still pliable, was yet unconsolidated. Many I bet that doesn't fit into evolutionary theory either. Oh no. <laughs> so how do they deal with those? Is this one of those things that they willfully ignore? Uh, well, they say those are beautiful plumes, aren't they? And that's all. And, and the fact that they run up through rock and require a very short time to have elapsed to run up through the, the rock above them. And uh, they Carl ignore. and I have both seen a pillar of lava up at 14,000 feet on Mount Air. Pillar lava is only formed underwater. underwater. Well, you know, I've uh, read that in every culture, like the Chinese, every culture has a worldwide flood. Over 500 accounts of mm -hmm. a worldwide flood. Among uh, people that don't believe in our God at all, and yet every, every segment of humanity without collaboration with the other groups all have this worldwide flood because yes. it actually happened. Yes. That's awesome.